The Bible that we hold, so central to our lives, is at its core the story of God and man. Two classes of being that are so uniquely intertwined and so glaringly distinct that it can be a hard story to read and a hard story to understand and an even harder story to try and live out. Paul says in Romans that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but then consistently preaches justification of mankind and our reconciliation to God, saying in Ephesians that we must imitate God as dear children. Two kind of opposing ideas here. We're told that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is wholly other than we are, we're told by Isaiah the prophet, and yet we're told in 1 Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ. Two very conflicting ideas, God and man. Moses was told that seeing the full glory of God would kill him, and yet we believe fully that we have that same glory and presence of God living inside of each of us today. So how do we understand the two major players in this cosmic, awesome story, God and man, and their relationship in this drama that we find ourselves in? This is a question I'd like for all of us to ask ourselves today, and it's the question we'll be looking to answer today in this study. So often, I believe, we either misunderstand God in our underestimation of him, or we misunderstand man by either over or underestimating him. And often that depends on if we're looking at ourselves or looking at mankind as a whole. But this misunderstanding can cause us to actually misunderstand the relationship as a whole between God and man, and then the story as a whole, the story of God and man. In the world of theology, there's a subsection called Christology, and this deals with the nature and work of Jesus. Um, one can have what is called a high Christology or a low Christology. That's, that's the terms they use for it. And basically, a high Christology tends to lean more towards discussing the divinity of Christ, where a low Christology often, more, more often discusses uh, the humanity of Christ. And it's not that these things are in competition, but you can say that a person or a certain work of literature has a high or a low Christology. It doesn't mean better or worse necessarily. So, for example, in the book of Mark, it's often said to have a very low Christology because it, it preaches the suffering servant. That's the portrait that's drawn of Jesus in that gospel. But it's not to say that Mark or Peter, if he's the one who in fact gave Mark the information uh, to write that gospel, didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. It's very clear that they did. But we'd say they have a low Christology because the portrait they're painting is, is one of his humanity. The book of John, however, in, in his gospel, has a very high Christology. He's the word of God. He's an eternal, all-powerful being. This is the portrait painted. It's not to deny the humanity of Christ. It's just to emphasize a different part of, of who he is and who he was while he was on the earth. So while the term Christology, uh, when referring to books of the Bible, is not a positive or a negative, or it doesn't preach to the opinion of the author, when we talk about it in relation to an individual or a person, it can reflect a person's opinion. So there are, there are scholars in the world that have both low and high Christologies. And low Christology people often want to emphasize the humanity of Christ to the detriment of his divinity. And other scholars want to emphasize the divinity of Christ at the detriment of his humanity. And they kind of believe in this either-or system. You can have one, but you can't really have the other fully. We don't really know how that works, 
And of course, there's people in between that whole spectrum. But this is a question that, that we struggle with as well. How do we understand God when he came in the form of a man? How do we understand the relationship between God and man? What's the appropriate mix? So this is an area that we also have to find a good balance in, Christology. And this is on top of already wanting to have a high estimation of God on the whole and not underestimating him, but also we as humans should probably discuss what I would call today our humanology. Now the appropriate term would probably be anthropology, but that word already exists and has its own meaning. So I'm gonna coin a different term today, humanology, because we need to think about God and who he is, how high and lofty he is, what exactly he is, what is his relation to us. We need to think about Christ and how he was God and was man and how does that work? How did that mix happen? And what is man? What is, what is our estimation of man? Is it low? Is it high? What's our estimation of us as a race? And this isn't because we need to determine how divine we are. With Christology, you're determining divinity and humanity and how that mixes. With humanology, we're not trying to determine if we are divine or, or what part of us has some level of divinity. We're not determining that because we're not God. But we're determining our place in the story. How do we relate to God who is so high? And often we think, I think we hold a very low humanology, a very low estimation of ourselves. We're sinners, enemies of God. We're of little worth except for the pity granted to us by God. That's a, that's a view that people have of themselves quite often. And our humanology can be so messed up that even that statement I just said, the pity granted to us by God, doesn't even really sound jarring in our heads at all. But it's not the pity of God that grants us worth. It's the love and the grace and the mercy of God, that grants us worth. It's what God did for us. But the word pity, we don't even hiccup over that because our humanology, our estimation of mankind is so low, or our estimation of ourselves maybe is so low, and we spread that to the rest of mankind, that we don't see our place in the story. We see ourselves as being very low. The truth is, as far beneath God as we actually are, we are made for participation with him. We're made to be a team with the Father and the Son. We're made to ultimately be a family together with them. But even now in this life, God has shown us time and time again throughout the scripture that he wants to work with us and through us. So today we're going to go over five different areas where God has shown us how God and man are supposed to relate and work together what our place in this story is, how we're supposed to look at humanity, how we're supposed to look at mankind in this story. We're going to look at the ways we misunderstand that union, that relationship, and try and find what Scripture says about how we should think about it. We're going to try and regain an appropriate humanology, Christology, and theology all at the same time. And the first area we're going to look at this is through the lens of creation. If you would turn to Genesis 1, we're going to, we're going to begin there. And this area will kind of begin as our baseline for the rest of the message. The story of creation is, is one that's commonly known. There's a lot of very black and white statements made about God and made about man. It's kind of cut and dry. But even in this area, I think we can misunderstand this complex relationship between God and man in this awesome story that we find ourselves a part of. So in Genesis 1, 
we have one of the most powerful displays of God's power, the creation of the universe from nothing and then the ordering of it day by day. In Genesis 1, it says this, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. So in this section of Genesis, we have God creating everything from nothing. Meaning he transcends the physical world. He transcends the laws of nature. He transcends nature itself. We also have the spirit of God hovering over the face of the chaos waters, showing that he transcends chaos. He's unaffected by it. He is wholly other than it. We have God speaking things into existence, bending reality itself to his will, showing his intelligence, his capability. And then we have God delineating goodness. That's something that none of us can actually do. We can play at, but we cannot actually do. God himself is able to determine based on who he is, what is good. Showing that he transcends opinion, that he is objective, that he is truth. This is a high view of God we have in the beginning of Genesis 1. As the Bible should start out, the story of God and man starts out with God and it is a high view of God we have here. So let's turn to mankind then. Go on down to verse 26. We'll see where God makes man and we'll see what he says about them. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now this gives us a lot to consider. The first portion of Genesis shows God's incredible power and ability, how lofty he is. But this statement about man, his entrance onto the scene of the story, this is where things get tricky because clearly God is higher than us. He is transcendent above man. That's obvious. But man is something new, something unique. He is in the image of God, unlike anything else in all of creation. But why? Continue reading. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we were created with purpose and responsibility as God's image bearers to look over the earth on behalf of God. We are in one moment humbled by our lowliness in comparison to the Most High God, and also elevated by our given purpose. Conflicting thoughts of mankind here. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. This is new too. We don't have this up to this point. God blessed them. That seems to elevate mankind a little bit. So in this, in this view we're trying to construct of mankind, are we, are we lowly and, and worthless? Or are we something other than all of creation? Something special, something different. This blessed element definitely goes in the something special category. And then it says this, and God said to them, and let's not rush over this either. This is the first time in all of the human story that this has happened. Up to this point, God spoke and things happened. At this part in the story, God speaks to them, meaning he has created mankind with the ability to understand, to communicate, 
to reason within our own selves. That is different. That is new. Continuing on, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is restating how we are in the image of God, what our responsibility is, the job originally given to mankind as God's stewards and ambassadors on the earth. And this statement, fill the earth and subdue it, most scholars will look at this and say, we were clearly meant to spread the word of God across the earth. As children were made, as humanity grew, it was to be subdued. It was to be under the authority of God. It was not just to fill the earth. It was to fill the earth and then bring it into submission to who they were subject to, which was God. So this is a high calling. This is a big responsibility that mankind has. So as we read through Genesis 1, we're left with this incredibly high view of God and this incredible potential for mankind. It's something very unique, which speaks to an elevated stature, but also it is so far beneath God. And so our opinion of ourselves still waffles. What is mankind? What is our relationship with God? Is it, is it something that we are something special or is it not? It's hard to understand here what our estimation of humanity should be. Now, yes, God said creation was very good and that included humanity. But humanity had the ability to sin. Built in it was a potential for flaw, for failure. So how could that be good? We still even question this. God's own word that says it was very good. And we say, it was, but what about this potential? What about this capability to choose different? Is that part of the good? And we're confused still. And we go back and forth like this until we get to Genesis 3, which is often where we leave off our reading of Genesis. And in Genesis 3, we know what happens. Eve takes of the fruit she gives to Adam. Adam is set up in this incredible way to almost be this Christ figure where he gives himself for his wife. And instead, he doesn't do that. He blames his wife. He takes the fruit and then points the finger. Showing, if you read the whole story of the Bible, just how short mankind fell from God, right? Set up to be a Christ figure, obviously could not accomplish what Christ did, but given the opportunity to, to show mankind does not measure up, where Jesus Christ later absolutely did. So we're left here in Genesis 3 with this incredibly low view of mankind. But we have to remember, in order for Adam's sin and disobedience to be as despicable as it was. That means he originally had to be of some sort of high, prominent stature. If he had been corrupt from the start, not at all special, irrelevant in God's eyes, what would it matter if he sinned? It wouldn't. If it was irrelevant, if he was irrelevant, his sin is irrelevant. The very fact that we look on his sin with such disdain, such almost regret for him that he did it, I mean, he caused death to enter into the world. And so we look at that and we say, man, what a horrible thing. But the only way we can say that it is a horrible thing is because of the expectation and the purpose that he had in the beginning, the elevated place he had in God's eyes. The fact is, Adam was formed by God to be an integral part of his plan. He was made to participate in God's dominion over the earth. God could have done it himself. Easily, he could have done it himself. But he desired to elevate mankind to work with him. And in the end, we know there was nothing Adam could do that would be able to stop that. 
Mankind, even with its ability to choose sin, was labeled very good because it was part of God's purpose. It was made good by God, and part of that delineation of goodness comes from its ability to fulfill a purpose in this whole story, which God knew would include sin, so that it could also include reconciliation and salvation. He was aware of what we were going to do, but it was all a part of his plan to allow us, flawed people, to show his incredible perfection. This is God and man participating together in the story of everything, even in the shortcomings. So maybe we should cut mankind just a little bit of slack after Genesis 3 and esteem ourselves appropriately, not too highly to think of ourselves as something great, not like God, but in the image of God, created for a purpose, designed to be with him, Maybe this should inform our humanology a little bit more. If you turn with me to John chapter 1. The next area we're going to look at is Jesus Christ himself. Remember, we're trying to regain a correct humanology, a correct view of our relationship to God. How do we understand who we are versus who he is? And how do we combat so often the negative feelings we have towards ourselves and towards humanity as a whole? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, very much related to this creation account we just read in Genesis. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So load everything we just talked about with the transcendent nature of who God is from Genesis 1. Load that all into your brains for here in John 1, because the same applies. We even have further emphasis of God's transcendence over mankind, because he didn't just create man. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he is not only our creator, he is currently and always has been our sustainer as well. This is also elevating God. We should have a high theology and high, a high estimation of who God is. Move on down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So something new here has happened. Of course, we can see how incredible God is. This, is. this is a given. But God is coming in the form of man. And often this is described as his condescension. He condescended to become like man. And that's true. We are not some incredible spirit being with awesome power and some impressive form. We're physical We're mortal. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Because we pair this, this moment where the word becomes flesh and dwells among us with the idea that this is Christ's condescension or God's condescension to be like man. And then we read this in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5 we do get a pretty low view of humanity. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or a thing to be grasped, is how some translations put it, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's no wonder with all of this information, we look at humanity as just absolute wretches. It's no wonder we can feel like absolute wretches sometimes. We are not equal with God. We are of no reputation. We are bondservants. We are weak and susceptible to death. Right back to that low estimation of mankind. But consider this. Jesus Christ was perfect. He set aside his power and trusted that the Father would work through him. He set aside his glory. That's the best way I think humanity can say it. He set aside his glory to become human, to take on the form of humanity. But he did not stop becoming God. He was not less because he was human. His godness was not besmirched because of his humanness. He was not tainted because he became physical. He was not evil because he became a man. Humanity did not sully him in some way. In fact, through his humanity, look at how much was accomplished. When God became man, the crux of everything we believe came to fulfillment. He showed God's love for the world. He became our mediator. He had been tempted in all ways as we are to become relatable. He became our example of a sinless and perfect life. And he showed us the way to eternal life, which was himself. Yes, God alone did all of that, but he chose to do it in participation with man. In fact, as man. He was not made less because of his humanity. So again, maybe we need to elevate our humanology just a little bit. Now, a lot of this message is going to be waffling back and forth between thinking horribly of ourselves and thinking high of ourselves, but hopefully we're whittling away those extremes to have an appropriate middle view all along the way. Because this, when God became man, was God and man participating together again in the story of everything. Turn over one chapter to John 2. We're going to look at the miracles of God. John 2, beginning in verse 1, this is, it's interesting, this is often thought to be the first miracle um, done by Jesus, uh, which I think is so funny because everything he did in some way or another was miraculous. What about the calling of the disciples? Like his calling in my life is a miracle, I would say. And so it's just kind of hard to count miracles. So I think it's safe to say this is one of the first ones, especially because it says in verse 11, this this beginning of signs Jesus did. So the beginning of signs, but everything God does is is miraculous in a way. So I don't want to minimize the other things he did, but this is a very common miracle when we think about the first miracles of Jesus. So John 2 and verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother is having none of it, so she said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. 
When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What a fascinating story. Obviously, we have the power of Christ displayed here, right? He is a powerful individual. God is working with him. He is God in the flesh. But why would the being that we just read created all things who could call angel armies down from heaven to do anything for him, who had the power of God ready at his command, who made everything from nothing? Why would he go about doing it this way? And this is something that when we hear these miracle stories over and over and over again, we start to just say, yeah, that's just what happened. But I always like to ask the question, but why? Why did he choose to work in that way? For example, I read this book a while ago called And He Had Compassion on Them by William Barclay. And he starts analyzing these different ways the miracle might have occurred. Like with the disciples and the fish. It's like, well, did God make fish right then from nothing? Or did he call a bunch of fish to them? I have no idea. I've never thought about that until I read that book. It doesn't matter, but it's interesting nonetheless. What was the miracle God did, and why did he choose to work it out in that way? He could have known what his mother would ask had the wedding run out of wine and just constantly kept it topped off. That could have been a way he still performed a miracle, but didn't do it in this way. He could have refilled the wine that had already been drunk, right? Just made some of the stuff we already had, and we'll just refill that. He could have filled the cisterns with water himself by either creating water or moving water from one place to another, maybe condensing it from the air. There's a billion ways he could have done this. He could have at least just filled them up using supernatural ability, right? Save the servants the trouble. But he didn't. The Psalms say, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Or as it says in Job, who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can pour out the bottles of heaven? Couldn't he have done that, but just with wine? Of course, he was God. He had the power to do it. But instead, look what he did. He brings mankind in to assist him. They heard his instructions. They filled the cisterns with water. They took the drink to the master of the feast. He had them do that, participating in the miracle. It seems like a harder way, and yet that's the way he chose to work. Of course, it was God's glory revealed through the miracle. It was not the glory of the servants. They were just witness to it. They were party to it. They were helpful to it. But mankind was allowed to play a part. They were allowed to participate. And this happens over and over again throughout all the miracles in the Bible. And you'll start to see it the more you look into it. Moses stretches his hand out over the sea, but God provides the wind that dries the path. The disciples cast their nets, but God fills them with fish. Gideon puts the fleece on the ground, but God makes it wet with dew and then dry the next. The healings of Jesus are often worked, or always worked, with the faith of the individual. Not because he's hindered if the person lacked faith, but because that's how he chose to work, with mankind. You see it everywhere. Through the miracles of God, we have a perfect example of God and man participating together in the story of everything. The next area we're going to look at is our calling. Now, this is a tricky one. What part do we play in our own salvation? 
tough question. It's been debated since the days of Christ. On one side, you have Calvinism. On one side, you have Arminianism. And then you have a billion things in between. We know that God calls. We know that man responds. This informs us of a relationship. We know the story is about God and man. But the question again is how? How is the relationship? What is it like? What is the mixture of God and man in this story? What's the balance? Now in Calvinism, they say that God does the calling, which I would agree with, but then they also say that his grace is what is known as irresistible. So if God calls you, you can't possibly say no. You can't pull yourself away. He knows what you're going to do, and he kind of directs that path. We're actually going to be going over that in apologetics. It's it's determinism, right? Everything is determined, including your calling and acceptance of that calling. Humans don't really have much of a choice because their response is unavoidable. If God calls, no one can resist responding positively. Now, in its way, this is a very high view of God because all of salvation is his work, right? No human will enters into the equation at all. No credit to mankind other than their response. And even that is dictated by God. It's just that we do respond, not that we choose to. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. This is where just one of the verses that they will pull out for this, the support of this view. Ephesians 2, we'll read verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, I'm not going to argue with that because it is the Bible, and I just read it straight from the text itself. So I'm not going to argue with it, but that's the interpretation that Calvinists will take of that, that God calls and there's nothing a person can do to accept or reject. It's just already predetermined. God has worked it all out ahead of time. So that's where they get that. We'll get into that verse, I think, in a little bit um, to get a clear understanding of it. But on the other side of the aisle, like I said, you have Arminianism, which believes in the resistibility of God's grace with caveats. So God gives out a general call to mankind, just kind of throws it out to everyone And his grace really only comes in the form that we are able to accept it, right? So all of mankind, they believe, has the ability at this time to hear and accept or hear and reject God's call to them. Now, I have issues with that too, but that is the other side of the aisle. And so this is a bit lower of a view of God because it, and it's kind of lower in the same way that I believe in it, because It is how mankind is also responsible for ourselves, right? It is the role that we play in salvation, accepting or rejecting. But does it mean that our acceptance of God's calling is a work that can save us? This is the question posed to Armenians from Calvinists. Because if it's a work that can save us, then we're denying what we just read in Ephesians. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 2. I think this verse runs a perfect middle between God's responsibility and our responsibility. I think it brings uh, both views into a a good alignment. 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll start reading in verse 13. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now look at the level of participation 
we are allowed into. It's kind of incredible in this verse. We know that God is powerful enough to do all of this himself. He could have created us and forced us or created us in a way that we didn't have a choice or didn't have free will. He could have made us like that. Easily he could have done that. If he can raise up stones to shout his praises, he can definitely make people that have no choice but to worship him and obey. But he didn't want this. It would have been unsatisfying, but he could have done it. He has the power. This is where the high view of God comes in. However, why must we think about this? Like either God is powerful and humans are nothing, or humans have free will and we are everything. That's a, that's a false narrative. Those are not two actual stances that we need to be taking. Why slip into either or of something that seems so clearly to be saying that God is so powerful that he can accomplish his will even through our fluctuating free will in mankind? Does that not estimate God so much higher? That even though I mess up, even though I have a will different from his, he can still work his will through all of that? It's almost like, We want to believe that humanity is low and God is high, or humanity is high and God is low. These are the two views, but they don't have to be the two views. Because in this verse, we see that God chose people to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, which is God's work, and belief in the truth, which is our conformity, our participation. Not that we have a part in saving ourselves or that our work does anything to save us, but he allows us to participate He wants us to draw close, to submit to him, not to force himself close to us. In this verse, he called through, you'll notice, the message of Paul and the apostles. And it isn't that Paul and the apostles were something special. Like I said, he could have raised up stones to preach the same message, but he chose to work through humanity. He chose to allow mankind to participate in the work of salvation. Not to bring credit to ourselves, but in fact to glorify God all the more, to show what he can do through the weak and the base things. In this verse, he chose and called and did the work, but we're also expected to continue in right living. He says here, uh, so then brothers, stand firm and hold. We're supposed to continue. We have an expectation on us that we carry on with this way of life. And it's not because we can hold fast to our own salvation We don't have the power to do that. We cannot force ourselves into God's family. We can be, we are thrown around by winds of change. God is our sustainer, our provider, our strength. He's our anchor, the thing we hold on to. It's by his grace that we are saved through faith. But understanding that humanity has a part to play in this story does not take away from the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of our doing, as it says in Ephesians 2. All glory belongs to God, but highly esteeming the glory of God does not eliminate the way in which he's chosen to work through flawed human beings who he desires to have choose him back. Even in our calling, it is God and man participating together in the story of everything. Let's look at one more area, the Bible itself, the word of God. Now, this one to me might be the most interesting ways that God has shown how God and man can work together and also probably one of the most misunderstood. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, you don't have to turn there. It's a very common verse. Uh, But it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, 
for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This verse where it says all scripture is given by inspiration by God is often translated God breathed. He spoke it. Yes, he inspired the authors to write, but it was his word initially that he commanded them to write. But how does this inspiration work? We know the Bible is God's word, but it's been transmitted through mankind. So again, we have this relationship between God and man in this story, but how does it work? We have evidence of the relationship between God and man from scripture, but have very competing ideas of how this works or what the end result is supposed to look like. We'll say things like, well, it's from God, so it's perfect. It doesn't make mistakes because God doesn't make mistakes. Then others will say, well, it's from man, so it's, it's less than perfect because humans can't help but make mistakes sometimes. These are the extremes. Where do we go from here? But what have we learned so far with every other area we've looked at? Adam, while built with a potential for corruption, was also optimally built for obedience and position and partnership with God. Jesus, while in a weaker body, was not imperfect or flawed, but was able to uniquely fulfill a purpose because of those very same conditions. The miracles of the Bible, while easily accomplished by God's incredible power alone, were so often worked through mankind on behalf of mankind to outline God's desire for God and man to work together. And then God's calling, while obviously the overarching work of God is God's work, it's a work that he allows us and desires us to participate in. It isn't hindered by us, but the fact that God seamlessly can work through our fluctuating free will and accomplish his aims further shows the glory and power that he has. So why would the Bible be any different? In Adam, was God's perfect plan made imperfect by sin? No. We can't say that, otherwise we diminish our view of God. In Jesus, was God's divinity made rotten by a mortal body? No. His plan was fulfilled in so many ways because of that very same thing. It's like when we look at the Bible, if we looked at miracles the same way we looked at the Bible, it would be so interesting, like, well, God sent 100 fish to that net and they only brought up 99, imperfect miracle. It's like, that's the way we look at the Bible sometimes. Like, man, God did this incredible thing. We're like, yeah, but what about that right there? And it's like, the work he did was perfect. He did it through flawed mankind. But the purpose, the reason he did it was fulfilled and it was perfect, even though it was through imperfect man. But in the miraculous, do we question whether the miracle was perfect because mankind had a hand in it at all? No, we still see it as a miracle of God. In the work of salvation, is the work hindered by our inability to communicate effectively or live perfect lives as ambassadors of his word? Absolutely not. God's word does not come back empty. He promises that. No matter our shortcomings, no matter how inept we are at doing certain things, God's word does not come back empty. The issue is with our perception of what perfection itself is. Just because mankind is involved does not mean that something is less and this is why our view of our humanology is so, so important. Because when we think of ourselves less and then are told that God and mankind are supposed to work together, suddenly we're diminishing the work of God because it is in tandem with mankind. In fact, often it's made better because it's God's desire that things should work that way. 
If it's God's desire, that means it is a good and perfect desire. And so to have it any other way, apart from mankind, would be less than God's desire, would be less. We need to think of it this way. It often shows his incredible power to work, work perfect things through imperfect ones like us. So when we look at the Bible, yes, the Bible is difficult to read in certain parts. It's tricky. It has various language and translation issues that you could get lost in for days if you just looked up one verse and tried to figure out how it was translated all the way back to the original manuscript. We have issues with what this witness saw versus what that witness saw and what they chose to write down and how they chose to portray that situation. We have this person's focus over over that person's focus that might have been drastically different when they were writing. We also have the author's worldview, which might cause complications for us. They wrote certain things, either scientifically or culturally, that don't really line up with how we understand the world to be today. I was giving this example a few, or I think last week, that in the ancient world, they literally believed that the seat of intellect and emotion was the heart. It was the inside core part of who you were. Because that's often where we feel it, right? That's where they physiologically, scientifically thought that came from. And so they wrote it in the Bible. Now, we have no problem with that because we've been able to turn it into metaphor. But if we couldn't, the point is, they wrote things in here that were the product of flawed human thinking. But the purpose of God was not thwarted. The word of God was not made less because humanity's understanding was imperfect. The Bible, like creation, like Jesus himself, like the miracles contained in scripture, like God's calling his people to himself, is a work of God and of man. It shows this incredible partnership desired by God, and in that union, it is perfect because that's how God wants it. Perfect because God is perfect, but not made imperfect because of its proximity to human beings. This is God and man through scripture participating together in the story of everything. Often when we become too empirical, which we so often are in a post enlightenment postmodern world we often miss the forest for the trees we play in the the depths of either or and black and white scenarios either god is lofty and man is lowly or it's the opposite this is flawed thinking the ideal as god shows us with incredible detail in this awesome story through so many examples is god with man in partnership working together to accomplish his perfect will, not only because the outcome will be perfect. That's another ditch we can fall in. Yes, this whole plan has kind of been messed up by humanity, but the ending will be perfect because God wants the ending to be perfect. No, God's plan start to finish is perfect with all the things we can do to mess it up. We cannot mess it up to the point where his will is not accomplished. With all of its road bumps and hiccups and trials and tribulations, the method that God is employing His plan in participation with mankind is also perfect. This relationship between God and man, while we do bring so much unnecessary difficulty to it, and I will be the first one to say I do, we need to not confuse humanity with sin because this is is not a bad relationship. This is not a bad thing. We are not worthless, hopeless, nothing, irrelevant. We have estimation in God's eyes. Yes, we're sinners. We need God and he needs us. But we're not despicable. 
We need to not confuse our humanity with sin itself. We're made by God in his image, higher than the rest of earth's creation for a purpose that we are to work in tandem with God. That's huge. That is a high humanology of ourselves. Now we need to not think so highly of ourselves as to put ourselves on equal footing with God. That's a mistake. We are nothing like him. He is high above us. But we should not think so lowly of ourselves that we deny God's own view of us and the purpose he has for our lives. Turn with me to one last verse in Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says this, For thus says the high and lofty one, this high estimation of God, this high theology, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, that shows that he is other than everything else. He is the most high. He is the one and only true God. He says this, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Yes, God is high and lofty. Our estimation of God should have absolutely no limit because he has no limit. And yes, we are lowly. We should be humble and contrite knowing our extreme imperfection. We are also those who dwell with God who are meant to dwell with God, to be revived and lifted up by him, as this verse says. So let's not lose our high estimation of God, our high Christology, but let's not forget that God himself has a high humanology that we need to consider. The story of God and man is about just that, God and man. Let's not write ourselves out of that story because of our inability to see ourselves and our purpose as God sees it.